Hi, my name is Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to the Changemakers Holiday Special. The world is a tough place right now, so we wanted to lighten the load by sharing some stories that show how people are making the world a better place. We're releasing episodes every Tuesday compiled from our back catalogue. This one is from our third series. If you like it, remember there is plenty to love from across the past five seasons of Changemakers. And stay tuned, we'll be releasing an all-new Season 6 in February 2022. Today's episode was recorded on the 4th of September 2019, when events in Hong Kong were changing day by day. On the 16th of June 2019, two million people took part in a protest in Hong Kong. Well, uh, I have joined this kind of march for, for more than a decade. Always we have a front banner at the front when we leave the start point. Already there were lots of people there. We could not move. Bonnie Leung is the vice convener of the Civil Human Rights Front, which helped organise the rally. Almost one in three people in the entire city were out in the streets that day. The front banner could not move. So I just sent a message to, to my teammates that, oh, the front banner is not at the front, we're simply a banner. <laughs> so we were a banner in the middle of, uh, of the crowd and we could not move. Well, I had never experienced anything like that and I, I was immensely, immensely proud. People feared an extradition bill, which could allow Hong Kongers to be taken to mainland China for trial. It meant that Hong Kongers could no longer trust that they would be under the jurisdiction of Hong Kong's distinct rule of law. Instead, the Communist Party of China could swoop in at any moment and extradite a person to the mainland for their case to be held there and their punishment to be determined by Beijing. A protest movement first emerged in March 2019, but the June rallies were of a magnitude that shocked everyone. Two rallies, each with over a million people. I believe the whole Hong Kong island were full of people who just want to protest, not to do anything else, but just to protest. We could sacrifice our life for this, so who knows what would happen. For those in the West, these enormous protests looked one-off. But Hong Kong, like many Asian cities, has a culture of mass protest and civil disobedience. Today we are in Hong Kong. The anti-extradition movement may look like it came out of nowhere, but it was built over decades. We came here in July and have kept in touch with local leaders ever since. The result is this, a special series on Hong Kong. And for those interested in Hong Kong, you should also check out episode 12 of Changemakers, which covers the 2014 Umbrella Movement. But to understand Hong Kong, you need to go back to Tiananmen Square. Let's go. I'm Amanda Tattersall. Welcome to Changemakers, the podcast telling stories about people changing the world. Our episodes about Hong Kong were produced by Samuel Chu, and this episode was written by Mark Isaacs. We are supported by the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. 
They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy dash lab. And you can sign up to our email list at changemakerspodcast.org. Follow us on Twitter at Changemakers99 or on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast. Hong Kong is and isn't part of the People's Republic of China, and it is and isn't part of Western democratic capitalism. Hong Kong became a colony of the British Empire at the end of the First Opium War in 1842, and the United Kingdom didn't transfer sovereignty of Hong Kong to China until 1997. This complicated history keeps Hong Kong in a strange grey area between the two political systems. You know, the people in colonial time, uh, we will not say that uh, we want the British to remain, though we, we definitely, we are at, uh, at that time, very fearful of the communist China authoritarian rule, and many people escaped to Hong Kong. And uh, all the, the generation, my, my father's generation, all escaped from uh, China to Hong Kong. And in the 70s, there's still a lot of people escaping poverty from China to Hong Kong. Chairman Mao Zedong attempted to transform China from an agrarian economy into a socialist society in the late 1950s, called the Great Leap Forward. It damaged China's economy and caused widespread famine and millions of deaths. Mao's subsequent cultural revolution purged capitalist and traditional elements from Chinese society in order to preserve Chinese communism. This led to widespread persecution and displacement and saw many people flee to Hong Kong, which was still under British rule. Lee Chak-yun is the head of the Confederation of All the Independent Unions in Hong Kong and has been a democracy activist for more than four decades. My father generation tend to say, don't, no, uh, nothing to do with politics. They are w- w- afraid of politics and therefore they just want to stay on uh, without any worry that, you know, raise their children. Uh, they have not thought of anything about democracy in my, my parents' time. That was the British era, you know, colonial time. Uh, there are no political representation for anyone in Hong Kong. But then in the 80s, is our era, you know, in a way when we were young. Although the 80s was their era, Lee Chuck Yuan's personal story of activism began a few years before then. You know, I think uh, back in the sev- late 70s, I was in the student movement and then uh, studying civil engineering at that time. And, but uh, I think the attraction for me at that time was the, uh, you know, the social justice issue. You know, like any university student, you begin to think, what are you going to do with your life? And I decided I should do something for uh, the social justice and the, the, the poor in Hong Kong. And that time is the time when I start to really do labour organising. For Lee Chuck-yun, it was in fighting for people's rights at work that he realised the importance of democracy. Workers, of course, need representation and need to uh, have democratic rights to change uh, uh, and improve our conditions and to fight for social justice. How can there be social justice without democracy? So very naturally, we are also part of the democracy movement in Hong Kong. The desire to express political democracy and self-determination in Hong Kong became pronounced in the 1980s, when discussions about the handover process from Britain to China first began. So in the early 80s, 
there's a discussion about a uh, future of Hong Kong. But then for future of Hong Kong, you know, what sort of future we want? So the natural uh, decision for our generation of activists is that uh, we want to fight for democracy in Hong Kong. We want to get rid of British rule, but we don't want to live under China. And we want to have a democratic Hong Kong so that we can resist a communist China. During British colonial rule, the Hong Kong people never had universal suffrage. The governor was appointed by the British Crown as their representative in Hong Kong, and they ran the government's cabinet. Democratic reform did come thanks to democracy activists like Lee Chuck Yun, but the avenues were limited. When I graduated, no, no election at all. But then during early 80s, the, the colonial government started to say that, oh, maybe we'll give you some sort of election in the district level without power. Reverend Chu was also a big player in the democracy movement. For him, democracy was the means by which people could improve issues in their daily lives especially in poor communities like Chai Wan on Hong Kong Island. So in the beginning, in 1974, when I came to Chai Wan, the main focus of my work was to look after and tend to the daily life issues for those in the lowest and working class of society. How can we improve the quality of life and, and, and how can I improve the larger community? So I came here to serve the poor and the impoverished. Reverend Chu is being modest here. He was an orphan who had been homeless. He didn't just serve the poor, he was one of them. I fought for access to healthcare, to housing, to transportation. That's where I started. I asked myself, my church was in Taiwan. What impact does the church have in the community that is located? That's the question I asked. And I felt like that as I kept asking those questions, as we got into the 80s, I started to address the issues not only inside the church, but also outside, working side by side with the residents and the neighbor to tackle those broader and bigger problems. So whether you were organising poor workers for better conditions or poor people for better communities, you can't do any of that without democratic rights. Reverend Chu believes that the 1984 Sino-British Joint Declaration brought Hong Kong democratic politics to life. As part of that agreement, China guaranteed Hong Kong's distinctive economic and political system for 50 years after the handover. It became known as One Country, Two Systems. In 1984, the quote-unquote handover became the primary issues in Hong Kong. Many Hong Kongers immigrated, many of them were scared. My work expanded from my small local community to the broader Hong Kong community. The issue impacted not only the residents in Taiwan, but the issue impacted everyone in Hong Kong. And if we can advocate successfully for a democratic political system under which everyone can live prosperously and peacefully, I felt like that that was also my obligation and responsibility. In July 1984, the colonial government proposed the first large-scale constitutional reform in its history. Democracy activist Miranda Yip explains. In the British colonial rule, um, we only have, you know, functional constituencies. You know, just starting from, I think, 1980s, we started to have some 
um, people being could be elected into the uh, Legislative Council. But the way they were elected was through functional constituencies. These allowed members of a profession or a special interest group to elect their own members to the Legislative Council. But it wasn't direct election. The professional groups that were allowed were from the banking sector, the medical sector, engineering, and they excluded the working class. Uh, in short, it is um, only the, the most powerful people in Hong Kong could vote. It is a very complicated and weird uh, system. Why it exists was because, first of all, uh, the British government, uh, of course, they uh, used to, didn't uh, want to give us a democracy. And secondly, the Chinese government won it because the Chinese government also don't want, <laughs> don't want us to have democracy. So this weird and totally undemocratic functional constituencies existed and, and, and sustained t- until now. Lee Chuck yun spent the 1980s campaigning for universal suffrage. Very naturally, the first fight we have uh, is democratization of the Legislative Council, the 88 Democracy uh, Direct Election Movement. The idea of direct election contrasted to indirect election used by the functional constituencies. We have a coalition of, uh, uh, of uh, NGOs, civil society, uh, and also district council election, and they are starting to political party uh, formation also at that time. So all these political parties, civil society, will join hand together to fight for uh, direct election 88. The handover created a political opportunity, and the Democrats seized upon it. On the one hand, we fight from the British, the direct election. And on the other hand, we are fighting against the Chinese Communist Party basic law to have a mini-constitution that guarantee our right. Lee Chuck-yun and the democracy movement didn't achieve their goal of direct election in 1988, but they did create a political base for democratic campaigning. And that movement soon became captivated by the rise of idealistic students fighting for democracy on the mainland. The students gathered in a place called Tiananmen Square. And then we also felt that, you know, we as Chinese in Hong Kong, we should fight for democracy in Hong Kong so that it can be a a window for China. And then we want to change China also. 1989 was a big year. Global forces were shifting. There was the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Soviet Union's Iron Curtain. But before all that, there was change in China. We feel that at that time, the mood is that uh, in 88 is quite a good time in China. I mean, good time in the sense that seems things to be seems we're losing it out, out. And, uh, you know, there are more political discussion about the future of China. So what was happening in China in 1989? After the death of Mao Zedong and the end of the Cultural Revolution in 1976, the country was mired in poverty. Economic production had slumped. But the following decade, major political, economic and social reforms returned China to prosperity. By the end of the decade, a democratic movement among university-educated Chinese flourished. We in Hong Kong naturally are very much in the human rights situation. We call for release of Wei Jingsheng, the very famous uh, dissident uh, uh, in China, and we have been fighting for his release uh, before 89. So in Hong Kong, there's a sort of a general uh, 
uh, mood that you know China is losing up. We have to support human rights in China. And then eighty nine broke suddenly broke out uh, uh, the death of Wu Yaobang, and and everyone was suddenly woke up in Hong Kong and say, oh wow, this is the biggest demonstration that China ever had. Of course, China had very big demonstration. Top down, you know, like Mao Zedong uh, staged the Cultural Revolution, and all these are very much a top down type of a uh, 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 movement. But this time is nothing top down; it's really bottoms up, uh, coming from a student and coming from the years of, you know, democratic discussion among the student in Beijing uh, about the future of China, and they uh, come out and say that they they. Uh, uh, commemorate the death of Wu Yaobang and they will ask for freedom and democracy. Wu Yaobang was a high-ranking leader of the Chinese Communist Party who pursued economic and political reforms in the post-Mao era. He became the enemy of several party members who opposed greater transparency and free market reforms. When he died due to a heart attack, his enemies tried to tarnish his memory and reputation. Reverend Chu remembers the response. As the students were memorializing uh, Hu Yaobang into the month of April, many of the student protesters were returning to or have already returned to schools for classes. But then what we now actually call the quote-unquote 426 editorial appeared on the front page of the party's official newspaper, the People's Daily. On April 26, the editorials are labeled the students at Tiananmen Square and what they were doing as quote-unquote anti-government rioting. The students immediately felt and reacted. In what ways are what we're doing quote-unquote anti-government or a riot? We're simply memorializing Wu Yaobing and we are against public corruption and cronyism and demanding democracy. So after April 26, all the students came out again, including people from all sectors and parts of the city. And over one million people came out to Tiananmen Square. And suddenly, Hong Kongers were alerted and alarmed that this movement was not as simple as it first appeared. At this hour, there are hundreds of thousands of people here in Tiananmen Square, perhaps as many as a half a million, even more. In the history of communist China, there has never been anything like this. It's important to understand what had just happened. There was a protest. Beijing officials condemned it, trying to repress it. What happened next? The opposite to what the government had hoped. More students came out in response. The curfew, in effect, turned a medium-sized movement into a monumental one. This might have been the first time this dynamic played out in China, but it would not be the last. The response to Yuabang's death spread to Hong Kong. The first um, sort of um, groups in Hong Kong that responded to the student movement in China uh, was the Hong Kong Federation of Students. So that generation of student activists began to go to China to support the student. So we have already a coalition to fight for the 88 democracy direct election, okay? As I've said, the labor trade unions, the, polit- uh, the political party, uh, the church, religious group, uh, social, social organization, housing, the resident organization. So in that background with this guy, together everyone 
come together and begin the demonstration. Democracy fighters in Hong Kong stood in solidarity with Chinese demonstrators. So when the students go on hunger strike, we have a we have a march in Hong Kong of one million. Uh, May twenty first was the biggest one of the biggest one in uh, in Hong Kong. And then May twenty eighth, there will be a worldwide uh, uh, march for democracy. And it wasn't just protests being organised. We have raised um, on one democracy concert with all the uh, artists in town. We raised 12 million Hong Kong dollar in one night. So then there's a problem. You know, someone had to go to China to visit the group. So I was the one that was chosen. Lee Chuck Yung got on a plane and arrived in Tiananmen Square on the 30th of May with one million Hong Kong dollars. We visited Tiananmen Square, uh, told them that we uh, uh, Hong Kong people are really very supportive of the movement and we hope that uh, we can together uh, can support their democracy movement in China. Hong Kong became like the Alibaba for the students in Tiananmen. Whatever the needs were, uh, many of the tents and supplies were donated and then shipped from Hong Kong to Beijing. And as the movement continues, everything was still very peaceful. They were just making the same demands for reform. But things were getting dangerous. A new dynamic had developed 10 days earlier. But then came May 19th, which was a pivotal turning point. When in the early hours, the Chinese Premier Li Ping declared martial law. And once martial law was declared, Hong Kongers became very anxious. Because once that happened, the movement now faced a very critical and dangerous situation. Hearing this, it's hard not to see the eerie similarities with Hong Kong in 2019 and the talk of state of emergencies and displays of military strength on the border and in Hong Kong. When we witnessed the way that Li Peng had announced and imposed the martial law, we immediately started to organise. That same day, we formed a group, Hong Kong Christians in support of patriotic democratic movement in China. Another larger organisation was also formed, the Alliance in Support of Patriotic Democratic Movements of China. We marched, we protested, we had prayer meetings all over Hong Kong, all in support of a peaceful resolution and to avoid a violent crackdown of the students by the Chinese government. There were 24 hours of prayer vigils all over Hong Kong. After the group's formation, sometime in May, we felt that it would be important to send someone to see what was actually happening on the ground. And so I was sent to Tiananmen Square from Hong Kong to gather first-hand intel. On the 28th of May, Reverend Chu travelled to Beijing. He met with student leaders and got to discuss with them the next steps. And I met with Wang Yugai and spoke with him at length. Wang was one of the hunger strikers of the square and he was on the 21 most wanted list by the government after the June 4th crackdown. We talked about the movement and he explained that the movement has now gone on for a lengthy period and he felt like that it must shift towards base building education. That it was time to spread out and conduct democratic and civic education in the rural villages. 
To any keen listener, Wang Yukai's idea has remarkable resonance. It sounds almost identical to the 2019 strategy. Today's protesters have said that they need to be like water, that they need to be fluid, moving from place to place based on what is required and not stuck in a square. It's almost like that today the ideas of Tiananmen have come full circle. So we decided to give them the funds that we had raised in support of that work, hoping that they would truly start in the villages and start the democratic education at the base. Before Reverend Chu returned to Hong Kong on the 3rd of June, he gave the student leaders a message. And I met with Wu Yihashi right there along the streets. I share with him that firstly, the student movement has already succeeded. Where it has succeeded is that it captured the hearts of all the overseas Chinese, their patriotism, their hope for a democratic China, and for an end to public corruptions. The movement ignited all of their passions. That's a success. Chinese people all around the globe had gotten involved because of their movement. Secondly, they are about to face a very difficult, sober, and dangerous situation ahead. The situation they find themselves in is that Tiananmen Square was already surrounded by the military and that a crackdown and clearing of the square was a matter of when, not if. I told him that you have to prepare for the crackdown coming. But none of us, not even the students in the square, ever thought that the crackdown would be with tanks, with real guns, shooting, and killing its own people. Reverend Chu had to return quickly to Hong Kong because he had to minister a wedding. But during the reception, no one could concentrate. The first news came in from Beijing. Guests were crouched over a crackling radio on one of the dinner tables. As news broke that shots had been fired, we knew that once shots were fired, the situation would start to spiral. Because once you fire, it made clear that the government will use violence and force and military might to clear the square no matter the cost. We were all deeply saddened and heartbroken. It was even worse when they turned on the television. We were beginning to see images on television, images of the military advancing and students retreating. And when we got home later in the evening, we watched the numerous students who were injured. Some of them injured were being transported and pushed along the street in wooden carts, all of them dripping with blood. Ambulances racing to and fro between the square and hospitals. Scenes of the injured and the dead at the hospital. We were all shocked and sad. We didn't really know what we can do. Lee Chuck Yuan was there. Then come June 4th, I was in the Tiananmen Square. And then, uh, you know, the workers, I was in the camp of the Workers' Federation at that time. And the people tell me that we, I must go back to the hotel because the, the, the army are coming in. And they are going out to see what is happening and want to stop the army from coming in. Of course, they cannot stop the army from coming in. And they have already started to shoot quite 
some distance away from Tiananmen Square. People are running uh, because the army start to shoot uh, on from both sides, the east and the west, and squeeze to the middle. There's no announcement. There's no you know communication easy. But then people know, and then they come back to the square and tell people that the army is coming in and starting to shoot. And it was a shock, of course, to the people. And they said that they have to go out. So it's quite like what happening now. You know, when the student young guys are there, you know, the workers and the old, uh, the people outside want to protect the students, so they go out to say that they will have to block the army. And the tra- tragedy actually happened on the street, not on the inside the square. Lee Chuck Yuan stayed at his hotel that night, not wanting to be killed by an all-powerful army. The BBC's Kate Aidy reported this from the scene. The noise of gunfire rose from all over the centre of Peking. It was unremitting. On the streets leading down to the main road to Tiananmen Square, furious people stared in disbelief at the glow in the sky, listening to the sound of shots. And then, as troop lorries were seen moving down the road, there was gunfire from those lorries. The troops have been firing indiscriminately, but still, there are thousands of people on the streets who will not move back. A huge volley of shots just as I left the front line caused panic. The young man in front of me fell dead. I fell over him. Two others were killed yards away. There was confusion and despair among those who could hardly credit that their own army was firing wildly at them. Air was filled with shouts of fascists, stop killing. In the morning, broke broke out and then you can see the, the people, you know, with the tricycle coming with bodies and injured people. The, my next problem is uh, where was all the students in Hong Kong? They have not come back. So we don't know where they are. And I think they are in the Tiananmen Square. And what happened in the Tiananmen Square, no one knows because the light was off. And of course, later we know that there's some negotiation uh, of Liu Xiaobo and the army, and then uh, most of them are allowed to go out of the square and, and leave the square. And then I find out the students was in the hospital, the Hong Kong student. Then in the hospital, then is where also the horrible thing you see, you know, the injured people, there, there are rooms that there are bodies inside and you know, stacked on there. So it's quite a horrid, uh, horrible sight. And then I get a student back to the hotel. And then uh, we have to think of how to leave China. Martin Lee. A Hong Kong politician and barrister chartered a flight to Hong Kong for Lee Chuck Yuan, the student activists, and the Hong Kong press. Lee Chuck Yuan and his group had the chance to get out. And when when I was in the airport, we go through the custom, and then we go on the plane, and then I was arrested from the plane. So they come up to the plane to arrest me, and then I was forced to go down the plane because they told me that. If I don't leave the plane, the whole plane cannot leave. So they make the hundreds people in the, on the plane the hostages. So I have to leave the plane. So I, I finally leave, and I was in the hand of the Communist Party. And of course, we don't know. I don't know what happened, but 
I think on thinking back, it's quite lucky that I don't think they have decided how to deal with me. So they put me back in a hotel, and the next day they bring me to a sort of a, a school, um, sort of a college, and then in the basement they start to you know interrogation and talk with me and you know ba ba ba, and then we talked for the whole day and and asking me what I'm coming to do, and I said that you know of course we support the student movement. I come. What did you think was could happen? What was going through your head? I can do nothing. You, I can only pray. Looking back, I think they have not yet decided how to deal with me. So in a way, that's good in the sense that I'm not locked up in a cell uh, or, or torture in, in that sense. So, But psychologically, I was very insecure, of course, fearful, because uh, this is a, a regime that had just massacred the people and kill thousands of them. I don't know, hundred no one knows exactly the numbers. But then, after three days, I think they let me go by asking me for a confession. So a confession in a sense of saying that I'm wrong. So uh, I have signed a confession that I was wrong. And then I was able to come back. Historian of China, Hans van der Ven, summarises the party's motivation behind the massacre. The thing about Tiananmen that we... St- we don't have a grasp on is how widespread it really was. It was all across the country. And there was paralysis within the party, which is why they did not act earlier. And Deng Xiaoping, who decided we have to act, and if we're going to act, we have to do it seriously. And blood needs to be spilled, and that will buy us a couple of decades of internal quiet. A couple of decades. Tiananmen became a dramatic moment for thinking about how to contest authoritarianism. Lessons emerged that often got reproduced, not necessarily intentional or planned, but Tiananmen defined most of the movements that followed. The first lesson was recognising the power of localised organising. And I agreed with that idea. I agree with their strategy. We needed to start in the base, at the base level of society with democratic education. So they already had this notion during the movement, but it was too late by that time. Regretfully, they didn't have time. They didn't have the opportunity to implement the strategy to spread out. The massacre on June 4th ended that. And also because in the aftermath, the continued crackdown and state monitoring and repressions was extremely tight. And even now, the work cannot be done. In fact, back in 2014, we had raised the same idea and strategy of being like water. From what we have learned watching different movements across the globe, we felt like that this was necessary. If you, all of you stay in one place or have one singular leader, it was very easy for them to arrest you. Or you would have what happened in 2014, where the government let you occupy the street for 79 days, letting the occupation lose its purpose and meaning. So we did propose that we should be like water and flow downstream and into different streams, into different communities, to work slowly and methodically in local neighborhoods. But the strategy could not succeed at that point. The idea was still very new and very fresh, and so we just couldn't pull it off. Be water. It didn't land until after the 2014 Umbrella Movement. 
but now it defines the method of the 2019 uprising. A second lesson from Tiananmen was the role of large, peaceful demonstrations. So on June 4th, we organized a large-scale march with everyone wearing black, a black-themed rally in honor of those killed and injured. The march took place in Happy Valley with tens of thousands of Hong Kongers to remember their fallen comrades. In Hong Kong, there was a million-person march in the lead-up to the Tiananmen Square massacre. Unlike the fixed occupation of Tiananmen Square, big protests in a single day were seen as safer, as they were less confrontational. Hong Kong protesters also recognised that they had an advantage compared to their allies on the mainland, because they had some democratic rights and the rule of law. That's what we fought for, because we know deep down that if this is the kind of regime we will be facing, we must have a democratic system in place to safeguard and protect our human rights, democracy and freedom. So that's the movement that we started. And in 1991, there were a selective number of legislative seats that were directly elected. But the story of Tiananmen did not end in Tiananmen Square. Weeks after the massacre, Reverend Chu got a phone call from a journalist who'd taken his business card when he visited the square. Students had been calling the journalist, wanting help to get out of the country. The journalist phoned Reverend Chu, desperate for help. Reverend Chu pulled together a disparate network of democracy supporters to build an underground railroad called Operation Yellowbird. The plan was to use smuggling ships to get people out of China via Hong Kong and then fly them to third-party countries. The name came from the Chinese expression, the mantis stalks the cicada, unaware of the yellow bird behind. At that time, we used very simple methods. The reason is because we were just everyday common people. We were not spies. We didn't have any training. So at night, how do we know if the boat has arrived? So in the dark weeks of the night, we, we were expecting an arrival of a boat. What can we use to be able to see in the dark? So that's why we use infrared cameras. We also use devices to sweep for bugs. Whenever we were meeting, we would sweep the rooms, check for any listening devices. We would also take our cell phones apart and store them away during meetings. We also use coded communications. All of our communications were single channel and one direction. Each specific code was only known to the one person on the other end of the communication. No one else knows. That allowed us to operate in secret more easily. Reverend Chu says they were common people, but I don't buy that. These guys might have been operating in a world of fax machines and pages, but they cleverly subverted every tool they could for their democratic purpose. Indeed, I don't see much difference between their creative use of pages and infrared goggles back then and the way in which the 2019 protesters used digital tools like telegram messages, airdrop, or how activists repurpose easy-to-find roadwork equipment like orange red cones to extinguish tear gas canisters. But it wasn't just technology that was on their side. It was many of the Chinese police. 
平民亦都同情。And we call the truth is that many of the Chinese police were sympathetic to the students. Everyday people and the police were all sympathetic. So even when they have spotted a student, they will let them pass. And in Hong Kong, we had already negotiated with the Hong Kong government and the different consulates had already committed to receiving the students. So everything happening in Hong Kong was done in part with the Hong Kong government. The PRC found it difficult to round up students in the aftermath of Tiananmen. This is because they had lost the support of many of their own police. Their brutal overreach actually fractured their monopoly on violence, if only briefly. Even a totalitarian state has its limits. Yellowbird began in June 1989 and continued until 1997, successfully smuggling more than 400 dissidents through Hong Kong and then onwards to Western countries. Every year since the 4th of June 1989, memorials have been held in Hong Kong. The 30-year anniversary occurred five days before the first million-person march in June 2019. For those who are old enough to remember it, Tiananmen is an escapable reminder that you can't underestimate how violent the state can be. Seeling, who is part of a Hong Kong mother's protest group, could see the shadow of Tiananmen at the 2019 protests. We don't want to become Tiananmen mothers. We do not want those tragedies to happen. But the fear of Tiananmen is experienced differently depending on your age. To what extent is that a, a fear that people in Hong Kong have about um, protest? Oh, do, yeah. do people ever worry that that could happen here? In 2014, when the Umbrella Movement came in Hong Kong, um, we were so worried that um, the government would do the same. Um, sending, you know, I mean, it could be troops or there was this tension between the older generation of activists and the young generation where, you know, they might have not experienced themselves the Tiananmen. The march for formal democracy in Hong Kong continued post Tiananmen. How did 1989 change the fight for democracy in Hong Kong? After 89, the people are really scared of the Communist Party. So it emerged into two different branch of uh, movement or demand. One is the to speed up the democratization of Hong Kong. And the other is to leave Hong Kong, to find exit. Uh, so the elite in Hong Kong would want to have a British passport. But how about those who remain? Lee Chuck Yun argues that this created a class divide in Hong Kong. The elite fled while the working class had no choice but to fight for democracy. After Tiananmen, Hong Kong's democracy movement split into two parts. Then we have a, decided to form another coalition called the Hong Kong Alliance in Support of Patriotic Democratic Movement of, in China. One will be uh, on Hong Kong and the other will be on, uh, on China. I'm at that time the member of the Hong Kong Alliance and every year we have the candlelight vigil that commemorate June 4th. And one of the role of the Hong Kong Alliance, apart from the candlelight vigil, is to highlight all the struggle of the Chinese dissident uh, and also the human rights defender in China. In 1991, Hong Kong had its first direct election. The British colonial government had only allowed 18 members to be elected, which was less than a third of the chamber. The democracy movement had been fighting for half. 
So it become a power, a power game. In the past, union power, street power, uh, we have been doing that for many years. And now the people, at that time, then people split, uh, start to say that we, apart from street power, we need to have political power. So political parties formed. The pro-democracy camp won 16 of the 18 directly elected positions. It was a race against time. Handover was six years away, and they knew it would be their best chance to win democratic concessions. They chipped away at the system. Functional constituencies were opened up, allowing more avenues for working-class people to participate. The Democrats' goal was to have in place a separate system in Hong Kong. It might be part of China, but it would embody many liberal rights around rule of law and have some direct elections. But the question was, what would the PRC do once Hong Kong was handed over? The pan-democratic was at uh, their most powerful period before the handover. But of course, as uh, Beijing was so pissed about uh, the, the whole uh, reform, and uh, af- right after the handover, uh, the, the original legislative council was uh, scraped. That's right. The entire legislative council was abolished overnight. Lee Chuck Yun was a legislative councillor at the time. What happened in '97 is that we all have to leave the LESCO. And then uh, we have to be re-elected one year afterward. So uh, the whole year was empty. Uh, and so the, the, that year they can do whatever they want, the Beijing government. Even when elections resumed, there were challenges. After the handover, you know, everything is stuck in the sense that stuck without any democratic reform. But soon, a new piece of legislation would energise people's participation in the democratic process. Uh, in zero free, uh, the government decided that they have to <clears throat> make a law on um, uh, national security. The infamous the, uh, Article 23 of the Basic Law. And the Basic Law Article 23 says something like, you know, Hong Kong needs to have a national security law against treason, against sedition, against... Um, subversion and things like that. Like the extradition bill of 2019, Article 23 of the Basic Law tried to create powers that allowed for the punishment of people who acted against the authority of the People's Republic of China. Debate fired up around terrorism and sedition in 2002, and by February 2003, Chief Executive Tung Chi-Wa proposed a piece of legislation that sought to define seditious conduct very broadly. History doesn't repeat but it sure does rhyme. The bill was met with anger. People like Lee Chuck Yun were very concerned as it outlawed the solidarity work he did supporting Chinese dissidents. So anyone practising freedom of speech in China will be a dissident and will be uh, committed to become uh, a subversive crime. So how can you in Hong Kong accept that? With this China law coming to Hong Kong? And then we will say that anyone in Hong Kong, which we have so many protests against China, people like us who will be then a dissident, and then we will be, can be charged with subversion law. Knowing that the Legislative Council was stacked against them, Hong Kong people knew that the only way to stop the sedition amendments was on the streets. They built another coalition. So the Civil Human Rights Front was formed with all the political party, the NGO, the civil society, uh, church group, and, and all these groups come together to form the Civil Human Rights Front. And then we start to, the, the, 
in a way to organize demonstration. And in a way, we are good at that, to organize a demonstration, because uh, the Hong Kong Alliance in 89 had, uh, had done a lot of demonstration. And even after 89, uh, every year we have some demonstration on uh, either democracy or the uh, candlelight vigil. Like with extradition, the marches started small, over time building more and more support. They used lawyers to explain to the public why the law was harmful to Hong Kong. Uh, the lawyer is very important in this sort of fight. Uh, when the lawyer says something, the people will believe them, and they do not believe in the government. Imagine a world where lawyers are considered trustworthy. The sedition protesters used new technology. At that time, it's no, no social media, but they're starting to have email. And email is at that time what we call snowballing of email. People begin to share email and then uh, to, to fight against this law. The chief executive had a plan to take the sedition proposal to the Legislative Council on the 9th of July. But that plan was changed by the people. On the 1st of July, 2003, the anniversary of the handover, people took to the streets outside the Legislative Council. And on July 1st, we have the demonstration. And that is a half a million people demonstration. Miranda Yip was there. It was like the first time that um, such a huge turnout protest in Hong Kong and the whole um, Hennessy Row and all along from Causeway Bay to Central were packed with people. It was exciting, but also tense. At the time, Bonnie Leung was a high school student. The last time before 2003 when we have this uh, kind of mass protest was because of the Tiananmen Square massacre. So that was the very first time Hong Kong people were so scared and cared so much about our city. But the public pressure worked. The bill was withdrawn. The street-based strategy was successful. And also that was the first time ever Hong Kong government and Beijing government saw Hong Kong people uh, can be care so much about our city and uh, would take to the streets. Uh, so I guess at that, at that time, it was a shock to both camps. They won, even with only a minority in the Legislative Council, or LegCo for short. So it's the same, quite similar to what happened now. We are always in the minority in LegCo. So People know that no matter what happened inside Lashko, we will always lose. Uh, so we have to go on the street to mobilize people power against this sort of a, a draconial measure. The, the government uh, soon withdraw their bill. At that time, they used the word withdraw. <laughs> and then uh, a few months later, uh, Chief Executive Tung Chi Hua stepped down with an excuse about uh, his health issues. Hear that? Withdrawal. Not describing the bill as suspended or dead. The chief executive used the technical, correct, procedural term that kills the bill. And then he stepped down. It's amazing how that decision in 2003 de-escalated the tension and returned calm to Hong Kong. The protesters had won, but they were also aware of the limits of what they had done. A pattern was starting to emerge. It is uh, uh, always a case in Hong Kong whereby we want democracy but denied it and frustrated. But then when the Chinese Communist Party want to do something against the freedom, it would, they are met with a big fight from our side 
and they may not succeed. So uh, to a certain extent, we are able to defend our freedom, uh, but we are not able to get democracy, and we are stuck in this very much of a system which is very unfair, but we are stuck with a non-democratic system. It might be one country, two systems, but it's a pretty frustrating system to live with. Without an alternative, mass protests continue to be an essential tactic of the democracy movement. So every big movement, you have a one generation of activists and the one generation of activists will have to choose what they would do after that big demonstration. In that generation of 2003, many people began to come out to become interested in politics and they began to run for district council election and legislative council election. So let's recap where we're at. We've had two enormous moments of protest, each producing a new generation of young democracy activists. We had Tiananmen and 89 activists who leveraged their protests to lock in the first pieces of Hong Kong's system of partial direct democracy. We then had the 2003 generation who organised mass demonstrations that successfully protected Hong Kong's distinct system. By 2011, a new generation was emerging. A group of high school students led by Joshua Wong began protesting against a proposal for moral and national education, meaning pro-communist education, that was proposed by the Hong Kong government. It was uh, started with a curriculum. When we look at the curriculum itself, something that we don't see is a very objective um, way of you know, teaching of the history. Um, they were just more emphasising on how great and grand China is and how we should love our country. The details about, you know, um, June 4th and, and Tiananmen or even other more critical, you know, ways of seeing how China has become the, the big power was totally not there. They were told that they need to sing national anthem and, <laughs> yeah, and raise a flag when we, we call, like, how mainland China has been in the Cultural Revolution and, you know, what you kind of brainwash people to, to absolutely you know, only see the uh, positive side of the country, that to us is just absolutely, you know, cross our bottom line. Joshua and his fellow students built a movement to oppose the pro-China curriculum. It was called scholarism. You know, scholar activism, right? Here's Joshua, aged 15, on a Netflix documentary. What we hope to do is just demand freedom of mind and freedom of speech. Joshua Wong was actually um, really directly confronting uh, C.Y. Leung. He was then the chief executive of Hong Kong. And of, of course, in a context where now we know that China wants to you know, have a tighter grip of Hong Kong, we know that where this is coming from. Miranda Yip was a parent of two young children at the time, and she became involved in the movement. The movement not only focused on the government, but on the schools as well. And, you know, schoolmasters and even, you know, the, the whole of the system, uh, kind of the hierarchy that we know that, you know, there are groups that operate in schools, like the religious group. They, you know, kind of actually have a management of like more than 20 or 30 schools. Uh, we targeted those uh, schools and the groups and the, and, and the religious group that might have that decision making so that we influence the implementation rather than we go only to how the policy was being designed and decided by the government. The movement couldn't just rely on targeting the government. It identified 
any decision maker in the school system that might support the new curriculum and put pressure on them too. It's the kind of decentralised organising you need to challenge authoritarian power. It sounds a little bit like the Be Water approach that the Tiananmen students had identified. It is a decentralised organising strategy and it's even more obvious in this year in the movement now um, on the extradition bill that we have seen all this internet, you know, using the internet forum, using every single uh, pressure points that you could possibly get um, to make noise, to pressure the target. The movement relied on the traditional mass protest strategy as well. At its height, the movement organised a demonstration of 120,000 students and members of the public. What was the result of all this protest? Eventually, uh, we pressured the government to uh, put a halt of uh, the pushing the curriculum as a mandatory uh, curriculum that every school have to follow. Miranda thinks it was a moment of political awakening. Before that, it was like um, people here in Hong Kong were we were called like the very much economically, very much focused on the economies. We were very business people, you know, we just focus on, you know, how business and trade has been going on in Hong Kong and we would just more care about, you know, the, the economic prosperity. When I first active, become active in the social movement back in my university and after my graduation, no one listened. You know, you just cannot, like, people were just so strictly focused on their livelihoods and their uh, business lives. And, and now it's like completely, just totally the, the different picture. This new generation of young people in Hong Kong are different from their parents and their grandparents' generation. They came of age with Hong Kong as part of China, and they are understanding that they are very different from the compatriots coming from the north of the border. They develop a clear, strong sense of identity as Hong Kongers. Joshua Wong and this new generation of young activists didn't stop there. Only a few years later, they became influential figures in the 2014 Umbrella Movement, which ended up staging 79 days of civil disobedience to call for universal suffrage. Umbrella occupied three sites in the centre of Hong Kong and it had a single Lenin wall decorated with dissident messages made out of post-it notes. We've told you about Umbrella before in episode 12 and in the very next podcast episode, episode 23, we recap some of its important details. Umbrella was another turning point for Hong Kong's democracy movement, laying bare the intergenerational conflicts that were growing. Umbrella had continuity with the past, It had trusted spokespeople, here the Occupy Trio, rather than lawyers, and it used the power of escalation, moving from smaller demonstrations to mass protest. But it also diverged from the past. The biggest difference came from the intergenerational battles that were fought inside the movement. A group called the Occupy Trio had a strategy to win universal suffrage that planned to end in a day of civil disobedience in the financial district. But the final stage of that plan never came to be. Instead, a week before the planned one-day occupation of love and peace, students went on strike, then initiated their own occupation at the government offices. When the student action was met with excessive police force, an occupation outside the Legislative Council began. So whose occupation was it? Who was in charge? And even more than ownership, what tactics should the occupiers use? 
students clashed with the police in a way that was very different to those who'd experienced Tiananmen. There's some younger generation of protesters at that time uh, that de- do not agree with the Federation student strategy of peaceful dem- or our strategy of peaceful demonstration. And they want to uh, fight uh, on the street. If you crash with the police, their violence will be stronger than you and you cannot really get anywhere by clashing with the police. The group also debated the value of staging a long occupation. Occupations come with challenges. And I think this time we learned the lesson is that to occupy will take a lot of internal wastage of energy. So it would be better to not to occupy, but to be more fluid and to sort of, you know, uh, occupy and retreat and occupy and retreat, march and retreat, march and retreat. So I think this time is uh, different. Umbrella became another crucible for learning. Universal suffrage wasn't one, but they gained valuable understandings into how to use different forms of protest. Umbrella built on 30 years of protest in Hong Kong and China. Taken together, themes emerged. The obvious theme is the power of big marches. But another is the value of decentralised action. In Hong Kong, the movement calls itself water, something Bruce Lee likes to talk about. Empty your mind. Be formless, shapeless, like water. Now, you put water into a cup, it becomes the cup. You put water into a bottle, it becomes the bottle. You put it in a teapot, it becomes the teapot. Now, water can flow or it can crash. Be water, my friend. The idea of be water can also be traced to the democracy movement in Spain in 2012, where they used the phrase liquid democracy. Like the ideas of the Tiananmen students in June 1989, the 2019 movement seeks to flow and move across Hong Kong and not be tied to a single space. Consequently, that July and August, every MTR train station had been decorated with a Lenin wall. There was an explosion of new local democracy groups and alliances that were organising events and action almost every day. But today's movement has developed into something that penetrates neighbourhoods and every community has their own template and tactic while all of them still are peaceful and non-violent. And the only violent encounters or scuffles are all instigated by police, stemming from the police pursuing peaceful protesters with violence and force. And so movement today is better than what came before in 2014 and also in 89. We're not static or stationary in one place. Everyone is acting according to their strengths and talent. Everyone is unleashing their own unique talent. And this is what you see in the Lenin walls and other special activities. They're taking out ads targeted at the G20 and international newspaper through crowdfunding. These are all new tactics of resistance. And I believe that this has evolved into a better movement. And that's why we implore them to not get arrested, to not shed any blood, to stay safe. Umbrella also revealed how hard it is to win universal suffrage. But even more than this, it raised the question of whether one country, two systems can work. 
as Angus Hui noted on Talking Politics. Because the failure of the umbrella movement showed that the Chinese government is not going to give genuine universal suffrage to Hong Kong. So the only way for Hong Kongers to get genuine democracy is to get rid of China. And that's why they just believe independence would be an option. New, more radical separatist narratives emerged after Umbrella and they are present in today's extradition movement. Instead of the mainland solidarity that spurred the Tiananmen protests, many in today's demonstrations call for detachment from the People's Republic of China. But beyond these postures, the 2019 generation, which is different again to scholarism and to the umbrella activists, are growing up fearful of 2047 and the return of Hong Kong to Chinese rule when the handover agreement ends. For the youth that they refused to trust the one country or two system in the 1980s. During that period, actually Hong Kong citizens were not allowed to get involved in the negotiation. And that's why for us, the Hong Kong youngsters, we don't believe that, all right, one country, two system or the Sino-British Joint Declaration represent us because we don't have the right to get into the negotiation and we don't have the right to express our views during the negotiation. So why do we need to recognise the Joint Declaration? Faced with this uncertain political future, it's not surprising that the Hong Kong people are pushing back. It's an existential fear. This is not going to stop, first of all. This is going to go on and on and on. The stakes are much higher than just this law. And I think there is a sense of sort of almost martyrdom, as you say. So a 14-year-old, people have killed themselves. As you know. People are willing to sacrifice their lives for what they are fighting for. This is a new ball game. This isn't just a fight about an extradition law. It's about much more than that. While the world's attention has locked on Hong Kong in 2019, these modern protests have been shaped by the weight of battles that have come before them. And the most recent and influential of all these battles was the 2014 Umbrella Movement and what happened in its wake. This is the focus of the next episode. The challenges of Umbrella raise the question, will people gather again to fight for democracy given they didn't win during Umbrella? On the 9th of June, when 1.2 million people marched against the extradition bill, that question was answered. I remember when I was in the June 9th rally and when we were walking um, towards the area where the umbrella movement, um, you know, we occupied that area for 79 days. And I remember so clearly. So I was actually in tears when we were uh, walking in the area and remember, you know, how moving it was. It makes you feel that the, the spirit has come back. The spirit of Hong Kong people have come back. We have come back when we had this slogan. We write on the wall that we will come back. You know, indeed, we come back. Changemakers is hosted by me, Amanda Tannisall. Remember to subscribe to this podcast to catch all our episodes. Changemakers is produced by Samuel Chu, Ben Keating and Amanda Tannisall. This episode is written by Mark Isaacs and edited by Amanda Tattersall and Charles Burke. Our audio producer is Jules Walker. Our sponsoring organisation is the Sydney Policy Lab at the University of Sydney. They break down barriers between researchers, policymakers and community campaigners so we can build change together. Check them out at sydney.edu.au backslash policy lab. 
We are also supported by the Organising Cities Project, funded by the Halloran Trust, based at the University of Sydney. Like us on Facebook at Changemakers Podcast, follow us on Twitter at Changemakers99, and check out changemakerspodcast.org for transcripts and updates on all our stories. And don't forget to register for one of our masterclasses if you want to take a deeper dive into the art of changemaking. Changemakers.